Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Okay. Um, um, imagine for the next 30 seconds that you're all water lilies. Oh, my God. I just can't do it. What's wrong, Kyone? I'm supposed to give my TED Talk later today, but I'm flushed. I'm sweating. Uh, my my mouth is totally dry. You've been leaning up against a radiator. It's more than that. I have terrible stage fright. So just call off the TED Talk. No big deal. I can't do that. Are you kidding me? You're nobody these days if you haven't given a TED Talk. Well, what's yours about? It's about, uh... It's about how to tie your shoes and how, you know, mastery of a different type of shoe tying can open up neural pathways to positive thinking. Uh-huh. And then people will give you candy. Uh, it sounds like total bull****. Of course it's bull****. That's a TED Talk. Kion, this brings up the least understood aspect of stage fright. There's an evolutionary component that people overlook. Stage fright evolved partly to protect audiences from having to listen to people who shouldn't be up on stage in the first place. That's an incredible insight. I know. I did a whole TED Talk on it. Huh. I feel much better now, and so will you after today's show on the history, psychology, and treatment of stage fright. And now he has nightmares in which he's performing Hamlet with no pants on when it was really Richard III. Colin McEnroe. I don't know why I dreamed that it was Hamlet. Um, anyway, so we are going to talk about stage fright. Stage fright, of course, is... Uh, well, I've, I'm convinced after sitting with this subject for a while that stage fright is not one thing. I think it's a bunch of different things or a thing that shows up in very different ways and under very different circumstances. But I'm the least uh, of the experts here. That's why we have guests. Sarah Solovich is with us. She's the author of Playing Scared, a history and memoir of stage fright. Uh, she's joining us from studios in Santa Cruz. Uh, and uh, here, David Tolan is here. He's director of the Anxiety Disorders Center uh, and Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy at Hartford Hospital Institute of Living and the author of Face Your Fears, a proven plan to beat anxiety, panic, phobias, and obsessions. And Mark Saunders is here. Mark has performed on stage for over 35 years, most recently as a member of Mad Agnes, a trio that toured internationally and produced four albums. They all have stories to tell of stage fright, um, their own and uh, those of others. Um, and But before we even meet any of them, and I have to say, we have a lot of clips for this show. <laughs> They're going to be very complicated to get to at times, so bear with me. But uh, we're, let's start with a clip. We um, sent uh, Katie McAuliffe, one of our excellent interns, to a rehearsal of Good People, a show that's uh, playing right now at Theater Works in Hartford. She talked to actress Erica Rothsrud. It's a little combination of having had too much caffeine on an empty stomach. Your tummy usually feels like Pepto-Bismol would be in order. Sometimes it's a cold sensation. It's uh, tricky. And <clears throat> when you see yourself out on stage and maybe you're gesturing and you see that your fingers are, like, quivering just a little bit, it's that kind of a, a feeling like you're out of your shoes by about an inch, and it's not a safe feeling. 
Um, Sarah Solovich, uh, having read your book, that's a that's a pretty good Rosetta Stone for a lot of the things we talk about. It's got physical symptoms and that sense of self-consciousness of seeing yourself, being aware of yourself uh, in the situation that you're in, which I think um, is is part of what you've experienced. This is both a history, uh, as, as the title suggests, a history of stage fright, but a, the story of your own stage, stage fright. Do you hear any of yourself in what that actress is saying? Oh, Absolutely. It's a real feeling of kind of an out-of-body experience for me at the piano of being kind of, you know, just floating above and watching myself play below or sometimes being in the audience and watching myself on stage. And that has been enough to undo me at different times, especially because so much of it is, and historically, you know, for me, was about evaluation and competition. So I always felt that I was being judged. And in fact, I was being judged on many occasions. You know, one of the things I want to explore here in the first segment, too, is, I mean, I think stage fright can happen a whole bunch of different ways. For some people, there's a a trigger, um, a disaster that that triggers it. For example, Laura Nero was booed off the stage in Monterey at the famous Monterey Festival. uh, And after that, she had terrible stage fright. No indication she has terrible stage fright beforehand. Um, uh, Sarah, for you, was was there a particular thing that made you enter the world of stage fright, or is it just in your wiring somehow? I'm not sure. I think it began with a couple disastrous um, performances when I was probably about mm, maybe 11 and 12 years old, and I was entered into competitions, piano competitions, and they weren't really high-stake competitions, but for me, of course, they seemed like very high-stake at the time. Um, And I remember clearly what would happen. I mean, the the worst thing was that my hands would just grow soaking wet with sweat. And then I would start to tremble. My feet would tremble. My hands and fingers would tremble. And my heart would pound. And I completely lost control of myself and wasn't able to think anymore. And since I was also performing, you know, pieces that had that were memorized, my I lost my ability to recall. So these were just real disasters you know, up on stage with a lot of eyes on me. And one experience led to the next so that, you know, when I went up the following year or six months from then, of course, what I recalled was the previous experience. So it became a real feedback loop for me. Right. There's sort of a, ch- there's was, a, a, there's a chicken egg problem, right? Does your stage yeah, fright make you blank out? it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Does your exactly. stage fright make you blank out or did the first blank out start you on a, on a chain of stage fright? Oh, Mark Saunders, um, also somebody who performs music on stage. In fact, Wolfie, uh, just let's just hear a little bit of what uh, Mad Agnes sounds like. And so, um, Mark, I believe, uh, like Paul McCartney, you're a left-handed guitarist who plays the guitar backwards. Uh, He has terrible stage fright. That's why you have terrible stage fright. (laughs) It's Uh, all a left-handed thing. That's right. You can leave now. Um, (laughs) No, so so to what degree do you have stage fright? I I wouldn't say I have it in a large degree, Mm -hmm. not not where it's been incapacitating, but— uh, what I would probably speak to is it is the times where it would just take me by surprise. I would be on stage, like one particular example is I'm on stage, uh, and we're in England, and I'm at the end of the song. There's a, a reel that's being that we that we bring into this original song, and there's something that happened where I just clicked and realized, wait a minute, 
I'm in England playing a reel, <laughs> and 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 it was so it was something that everyone knew in the audience, and and it was technically a little difficult, and something just clicked and froze, and it fell apart, and and there I was projected out, and and it happened. I could watch it happening. It was like slow motion. I knew it was going to screw up, and there it was. So it was the the thinking about it. So, David Tolan, there's so many questions that we have here about this, but let's start with this question of wiring. Um, you would argue that that for Sarah, maybe not so much for Mark, but occasionally for Mark, but this there is a wiring component. This is just so, something that you, you're set up to have this happen. Yeah, some of this is certainly in our wiring, Colin. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're born with crippling stage fright, but we are all born with an innate likelihood of developing that kind of fear over others. And there's good reason for it. If you imagine that, you know, we're all just walking around with caveman brains. I mean, the the brains that we have in our skulls were not built for performing music and they weren't built for being on the radio or any of the other things we were doing. They were built to escape predation. So if you you take yourself back to the, the African savanna, well, what does a bunch of eyes on you mean? It means there's a threat. And so it, it, it is perhaps not surprising that many of us, maybe even most of us, would feel a twinge of fear when we notice people's eyes on us. That, again, that doesn't mean that, that the fear has to become debilitating, but it is important to recognize that some of this is hardwired. Um, it, it, it makes a certain kind of sense, too, that we would be having this kind of, uh, of visceral reaction. Um, but so, Sarah Solovich, um, as you looked at this, I mean, actually, sort of let's go back to this question. One of the things that I think you and Mark have in common is that notion of becoming very self-aware about what's happening. And I know that you talk to all kinds of different therapists and um, and sports psychologists and, and uh, coaches and you know, everybody that you could possibly talk to. And, and that, that does seem to be a big part of this, right? That if you, it's the opposite of flow. Flow is the thing we're supposed to, we're, we're supposed to be completely immersed in what we're doing and there's no beginning, there's no end. We barely notice that we're in this kind of perfect alignment with our task. What, you, what you're experiencing is the opposite of that, right? Um, for sure. I mean, I could play very easily at a lesson or by myself, um, but then put me in front of a large group of people or even a small group of people and suddenly things would unravel. And I did see that and, you know, hear that from other people. For instance, Steve Sachs, who was, um, you know, an all-star baseball player in the 1980s. In 83, he had a complete meltdown and you know, he was one of the great throwers, and he could no longer throw from second base to, you know, to first. Mm. And his whole, you know, falling apart just kind of took place in front of the country. They could take him out between, you know, between games and blindfold him, and he would throw, you know, just perfectly to first first plate. And then, you know, when then when suddenly he had to play in front of, you know, a stadium full of people, he just couldn't do it at all. So he had to kind of, you know, just go back and reconstruct his entire way of playing. Just, you know, he called it chopping down a tree, chop by chop. 
Right. So, and I think this is that's an important distinction to make here, which is that um, that's sometimes called Steve Blast disease. Uh, after the pitcher of the, uh, for the Pittsburgh Pirates, we like to call it Steve Blast disease because he's from Canaan, Connecticut. Um, but it's uh, it's something that's uh, affected a lot of baseball players in particular, uh, and it's because you're trying to do something that you know that you know how to do. Right. It's a relatively easy thing to do. Blast said the same thing. He'd go out in the bullpen. He could throw the pitch that he couldn't throw on the mound. But it really has affected a lot of second basemen because that th- throw to for is very short and so it's not a matter of knowing how to doing it or being able to do it or something it's a matter of overthinking this very simple thing Mackie Sasser had a similar problem his career almost mm-hmm. ended he was a catcher who couldn't throw the uh, ball back to the pitcher he was overthinking it short arming it kind of having the yips and so Mark I feel like this is a, a point worth making that this happens okay now every once in a while I will go out and sing with a jazz combo but I'm not a trained singer I'm not I, you know I, it, it's not I don't have I, I have a warranted lack of self-confidence uh, you know <laughs> I have a good reason to be nervous as I'm walking out there it's really quite possible in a very real universe that I don't know what I'm doing I'm not Steve Sachs making the third to second and I'm not Mark Saunders playing the guitar this is something you know how to do but in a way, that overthinking thing is what you just described. It's overthinking, and it's also comparing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a big, you know, when I'm comparing myself to some of my idols, I don't know how to play guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so you're doing the same thing on a different level, but it's still comparing. And, uh, and also to note that when I'm conscious of, when I'm watching myself play the guitar, I'm no longer playing the guitar. Mm-hmm. So, Dave Dillon, why doesn't everybody have uh, stage fright? Why don't we all have the same amount of stage fright? Well, I think there's a, a number of reasons why we, we differ. And one of the things is that there are, there are some people who fall into the stage fright and they start generating what, what I'm hearing uh, Mark and, and Sarah talk about as self-focused attention. Mm-hmm. If you imagine that your attention, what you can actually be thinking about at any given moment, is very limited. Um, you can really only pay attention to one thing at a time. So what I'm hearing from Mark and Sarah, as well as from the uh, clip from Theater Works that you played, is everybody is talking about having some experience where they are looking at themselves or seeing themselves. In, essential, in, in essence, what they're doing is they're, they're paying attention to their own outward appearance. If you do that, then you have that much less attention that you can pay to the task, and all of a sudden you start getting into... A cycle because now you're not paying very good attention to the music you're trying to play or the lines you're trying to recite. You start flubbing up. You then start paying more attention to yourself, and down it goes. How about um, just? I mean, there are sort of other situational factors. There's things in our lives. It, it's interesting because last night I did watch. Uh, go to the, I went to the movie Love and Mercy, which is about Brian Wilson. Mm-hmm. Brian Wilson is from you know the Beach Boys, and that was uh, initially a family uh, operation. Uh, they did he did have a tyrannical, punishing, and and micromanaging um, megalomaniacal father, but his brothers did too, and and but I, I and and Brian did have stage fright. That was the first manifestation of all of his subsequent problems. But it, it makes me think there might be a convergence or a confluence. In other words, mm-hmm. Carl Wilson uh, and Dennis Wilson didn't have stage fright. Right. They had the same father. But there's n- you don't want to discount the father, too. I mean, there's something about Brian's temperament maybe makes it harder for him to deal with that overbearing presence. Well, I think the temperament is a big piece of it. I mean, you can see things like shyness from age two on up. And, and there's research uh, uh, from Harvard that, that shows us that 
If you do careful observations of a two-year-old, you can make remarkably good predictions about how they're going to be living when they're 40. And there are some kids that are inherently born with a much more anxious and shy temperament. They react with a more aversion, more fear, more timidity when they have other people's eyes on them. And it could be that that's part of what causes some people to, to grow into a, a more of a sense of stage fright. As we go along here, by the way, we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions or comments or your own experiences with stage fright, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Sarah, I didn't know whether you wanted to um, chime in about that sort of difference between whatever's there in your wiring and then the external circumstances of your life. I mean, some musicians do grow up with pushy parents who are working them really hard, and, and, and that's got to play into it, at least for some of them. I think that some people simply have like more catecholamines that are um, that, that appear, you know, when you have an adrenal, you know, your adrenaline um, rush. And so some people simply have, you know, a greater adrenal adrenal glands and, a, you know, a greater catecholamine experience. So, yeah. But in my experience, I think that my mother really helped um, create a situation. You know, I was someone who started playing the piano when I was seven years old, and it was always expected that I would compete and play and study very hard. And it was, you know, to the extent that she would chase me around the dining room table with a wooden paddle to, to go and practice. And it was it was funny. We laughed about it, but she often caught me, and she broke quite a few wooden sticks on me. So it was, um, I think, this pressure that, you know, you are... Um, put into as a child along with your own temperament contributes. But what I've found is that I've also been able to do things that my my own fear is very piano-centric. Mm-hmm. I have a phobia that is, you know, all about playing the piano, and it doesn't really emerge in other aspects of my life. Right. I'm going to go way out on a limb and say that whole thing with a wooden paddle did play a role. Uh, I, I feel as though I, I feel safe uh, somehow they're playing, uh, saying that. So, I mean, another way of looking at this, though, um, Mark, is that, um, well, actually, before we even do that, um, Sarah was talking about adrenaline. And I think that's kind of interesting, too, because adrenaline, people experience adrenaline as anxiety, but they also just experience it as the necessary excitement that gets them charged up to perform. Uh, Betsy Kaplan was out uh, at the LaSalle uh, open mic night in Collinsville. This is the kind of far-ranging reporting we've done for this uh, on Friday night. She talked to a young performer named uh, Mariah Roberto. It's like you're nervous but excited at the same time. Like you're so jittery and it's just like a rush of exhilaration. But it's like I've always wanted to do this so it's like all the chances that I get, I take. And the first time wasn't that great because I was like eight or nine. I didn't know how to play guitar then, so I was kind of just singing a cappella, and I was very pitchy. And I watched it later, and I was like, oh, my goodness, why did my mom let me do this? Okay, so, um, Mark, um, before the show, just uh, right before the show, I happened to be talking to a very, very accomplished and talented and esteemed orchestral musician who will remain nameless for now. And and I think it's in Sarah's book um, that I read that by one estimate, 30% of the people in orchestras uh, are taking beta blockers uh, to keep them calm. This particular esteemed orchestral uh, musician told me, no, <laughs> that's way low. <laughs> she said pretty much everybody is taking a beta blocker. Now, 
I'm not suggesting that you're taking a beta blocker when you perform with Matt Agnes, but it, it that's no, we, we we played in bars. That's right. So you just they right. they come with beta that's blockers. Right. Um, they uh, they no, those are mental blockers. <laughs> those are brain blockers. The, the but. It suggests that musicians, because they have to perform all the time, you learn somehow, ever to, uh, somehow or other to live with whatever anxiety you've got, or you're just out of the game. I know that when I was in the flow, when we were doing, when we had five nights in a row or something like that, the, it, there was always a sense of, of confidence that I walked into. So it wasn't disrupted. Uh, I was just, I think, in the flow. And um, when there were larger lapses of time or a... a particularly large event um, that's where it would it would rear its head again um, and again I think it was just the way that I was framing it what I was calling it what it, what I was anticipating about it that would start the whole thing and and I would I've learned to recognize that taking place and step away all right and towards the end of the show we're going to talk about sort of specific methods that everybody on, on the show has either uh, developed or used um, to uh, to deal with this. But, you know, um, Dave Tolan, I still feel like we're talking about a couple of different things, and maybe they're all just manifestations of the same thing. But when we talk to these musicians, these are people who've made a determination to perform. They have certain standards they're trying to meet. They're kind of aware of what the battlefield situation is, right. too. They've experienced it. They know what it's going to be like. They, they know what they're going to run into. They know the upsides, the downsides. But it seems to me that there's a much larger uh, unseen iceberg of people out there um, who who don't do that, but every once in a while someone is, is it's suggested that they might have to speak in public, and mm-hmm. they freeze at the idea, right? Yeah. And and they haven't played it all the way through yet. It's not like they've they don't have the kind of familiarity that Mark is talking about or that Sarah is talking about. The idea of it mm-hmm. is terrifying to them. Right. So are they at some level playing this all the way out, or is this, is this some kind of atavistic, very primitive reaction that they're having? I would say it's actually both of those. That mm-hmm. at a biological level, it's the very same thing. Mm-hmm. So if if you coming into your show, uh, Colin, are you going to a gig, Mark, experience that that kind of pleasant sense of butterflies and you're excited and you're amped up. Biologically, that's the same thing that some terrified person is experiencing. So what's the difference? The difference isn't biological. The difference is mental, that you're calling it one thing and somebody else might be calling it something else. So if one person may experience that physiological arousal, and we, you know, we refer to this as the sympathetic nervous system, so the heart rate starts speeding up, the mouth goes dry, the muscles get tense, the body starts to sweat, and they label it as excitement, and I'm eagerly anticipating this. Another person experiences the exact same physical sensations and says, oh, my God, I'm terrified. I'm going to do a horrible job. At, at the far end of the spectrum, I would just note there are people who pay perfectly good money to do things like jump out of airplanes because they crave those exact physical sensations. So it it all becomes a difference of perspective. All right. Uh, we're going to grab a couple of calls here, then take a break. Uh, we're going to talk very specifically about the world of music uh, in the second segment, although we've kind of been there already. So let's start with uh, Daniel in Middletown. Hi, Daniel. You're on the air. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I, I'll just give you a very brief history. When I was in college, I failed uh, public speaking twice. I, I couldn't even make a small speech to the classmates. I became a musician after college and had tremendous stage fright. And then somebody suggested hypnosis. This was in 1981. And I went and uh, met with a hypnotist who eventually became my teacher. And I overcame my stage fright. And um, I did it with hypnosis. 
And one of the routines I do in my high school and college shows particularly is I ask for the person who's the shyest person on stage and would never speak in front of the group. And when I find who that person is, I give them a suggestion. And in the moment, and until we remove the suggestion, they become a very powerful speaker. And I guess my, my thought is that I really I changed my thinking and I use a method. It's called like anchoring a good feeling. I still do it when I go to work, and it just makes me feel calm. All right. We're going to talk about a lot of these methods, uh, as I say, sort of in the final segment of the show. So do you get nervous before you're about to perform as a stage hypnotist? I do. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm more nervous <laughs> speaking to small groups than I am to large groups for some reason. Well, actually, that's, that's not that unusual. In fact, Sarah, I think you found a college professor who has that, right, that he can uh, speak to a, a large lecture group but not to a small group? Um. I'm thinking the of the guy. I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of the guy who can't speak to his uh, small uh, synagogue group in New Haven. Oh, right. And actually, I talked to a couple different clergymen who could not speak to their, you know, their churches or their congregations, rabbis and um, pastors who had real problems speaking, and yet they did it you know, week after week. And a couple of them said that every week was a countdown to Sunday. All right, let's uh, grab a call from Walter, and then we're going to take a break after that. It's Walter in Springfield. Hi, Walter. Hi, folks. I love the show. I can certainly relate. Uh, I've been a stage actor since I was five, and have faced stage fright every performance and twice on Saturdays. Uh, But I recognize a lot of what you're saying in myself. Yeah? And... uh, I have three things that mitigate stage fright every time I step, just as I step into the wings to go on stage. And the first is a confidence in my own abilities. And the second is knowing that I'm prepared, that I know the lines, they're in there somewhere, and I'll find them when I need them. And the last is when I get out on that stage, I'm home. Mm -hmm. That's where I really want to be, and I get totally relaxed. So I have stage fright for about a couple of minutes as I hear the, uh, the opening music. And then off we go, and there's no looking back. David Tolan, that's kind of an interesting, um, uh, there's a divergence here. I mean, uh, a lot of people, so Mark, uh, and I think to a certain degree Sarah, would have the stage fright on stage, becoming Mm self-conscious, holy moly, I'm sitting out on this limb and I'm sawing it off Mm -hmm. at the same time, uh, whereas he doesn't. It's it's really that anticipatory. Yeah, he has the anticipation, and that's true of a lot of people. Much of the time what we find is that things are much scarier as we're anticipating them and thinking about them than they are once we're actually doing them. All right, we're going to grab a quick break. We'll come back with more Stage Fright after this. I saw a thing, actually, a study that said speaking in front of a crowd is considered the number one fear of the average person. I found that amazing. Number two was death. (laughs) Death is number two? This means to the average person, if you have to be at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. 
All right, that's Jerry Seinfeld on Stage Fright. We're talking to David Tolan. He's the author of Face Your Fears, a proven uh, plan to beat anxiety, panic, phobias, and obsessions. And two musicians, Mark Saunders, uh, he's performed for over 35 years, most recently as a member of Mad Agnes. Uh, Sarah Solovich uh, is uh, trained as a concert pianist. She's the author of Playing Scared, a history and memoir of stage fright. So, Mark Saunders, you said something before that I think um, it's interesting, and it's interesting when you contrast it even with a comedian. Um, You know, um, having done a little bit of stand-up comedy, I can tell you that, you know, if you're a comedian, you want them to laugh. You really want them to laugh. Um, And you don't want them to boo. Um, But it might not be too much more than that. But I feel for for musicians, there's this other inner voice that's going on that's not the audience. It's you. And it is, there's something about perfection going on, right? There's something that you're going for that chances are 99% of the audience will never hear. And that that's where a lot of the anxiety comes from. It's true. We, we would have conversations after a gig and have, there were three of us in the trio, obviously, and, and we would each have a different perception of what actually took place in that performance and whether that moved us closer to our own personal goal or not in that in that looking for that uh, transcendent performance um, that we all look for when we play. So uh, Betsy Kaplan was out uh, at, as I say, at the LaSalle Open Mic Market in uh, Collinsville uh, and talked to um, Patty William, who I think um, had been performing for a while and then was, in fact, derailed for a while by stage fright but was getting back in front of the mic. Very little as a child, um, I would sing in front of anybody. Somewhere along the line, I became very self-conscious, probably in my 20s, and very nervous, and would no longer get up and sing in front of people. For some reason, it just kind of overcame me. Um, That followed me for a long time, and, and it followed me into the open mic circuit. When I started to play guitar and sing out in public and open mics, I definitely had a lot of trembling moments, nervous, shaky moments. But after about 200 times, I finally just said, I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to say goodbye to it, and I'm going to take that and use it, turn it into excitement instead of anxiety, instead of fear, instead of worrying about not doing it perfectly. You know, this is an important point, and Jim Chapdelaine, our friend and great musician, uh, has tweeted at us, is some fear good for an edge? You know, uh, Sarah Solovich, I really liked what David Green, the sports psychologist, uh, said to you about this, that um, that you can't try to become a person who's not at all fearful or not at all anxious or not at all excited in order to tame this beast that's causing you stage fright. He compared it to a, a tennis player whose serve always goes in. That means, he says, the tennis player isn't pushing him or herself out to the the limit where the great serve is, uh, that when a tennis player starts faulting, that means that he or she's taking the risk uh, and, and, and getting into this uh, uh, kind of a discomfort zone. That's where the great performances come from, right? Right. And there's something very different that happens between practice and performance. When you practice, you're really a cold-blooded scientist. And every note, every passage, every bar has to be analyzed and listen to extremely closely but when you go and perform you're really playing for god or you're you know you're you're just opening up and you can no longer think about that and so much of stage fright i think is you know like kind of paralysis by analysis right i mean you just stop and you ponder and perseverate and you're thinking about every last thing and you're not able to just kind of open yourself up and stop being self-conscious and that's where the destruction really comes in. Well, you know, self-destruction. David Tolan, um, 
you know, uh, once again, I sort of feel like we're, we have sort of two things that are an in interesting coexistence mm -hmm. with one another. You have, I mean, the reality of probably more than 50% of the uh, people in an average pit orchestra or orchestra are on beta blockers. Please make them physical symptoms go away, sure. please. And, and that's our natural reaction generally mm -hmm. anyway. Please, Dr. Tolan, give me something right. <laughs> that will <laughs> make me stop being so afraid. Yeah. But Mark and Sarah, Jim Chapterlin, they're all kind of saying the same thing, that that's not actually really where the solution lies. No. In fact, you, you need a certain amount of arousal or anxiety or stress or whatever you want to label it in order to function well. I mean, so if, if you, Colin, had zero stress prior to doing a show, your show wouldn't be as good. And the same thing would be true of, of Mark and Sarah in their, their performances. If you didn't stress out about it at all, you really wouldn't be caring, and therefore your performance wouldn't be any in, in, very good. So for any given task we're doing, there's an optimal level of stress. Too low, and you're not putting in your best effort. Too high, and you're probably oh, exceeding your capacity. The uh, the other question that I always have for people who are in other fields is, well, you know, once you get through one of them successfully, isn't it all over? So um, I think uh, how did the LaSalle market uh, we ran into or Betsy ran into our old friend Kate Callahan, uh, who had something to say about that, too. It would actually be worse for me after I would play. I, I would play a little show and then I'd come home at night and I'd be lying in bed and I would just be stewing and stirring over what I had done on stage it's so badly that it would you know three in the morning four in the morning would come and I would say all right you know what Kate I'm gonna quit it's over I'm quitting and I then I would promptly fall asleep <laughs> and then I would wake up the next morning and I would re renegotiate <laughs> and start all over again Sarah Solovic does that sound familiar oh yes I've done that many times I've declared you know that I would never do this again and that I was definitely overperforming. And that that 3 o'clock kind of um, nightmare, that waking nightmare, is very familiar to me. It was fascinating in the book to see how many people that you associate with a kind of supreme confidence at what they do are like this. I mean, Thomas Jefferson... Um, uh, Mohandas Gandhi. I mean, <laughs> those, are, those are people you describe, Sarah, in your book as having had terrible experiences with um, the, the fear of, of speaking in public. We think of these people as unbelievably glib. You know, I always found as a reporter that I loved adrenaline. Mm. You know, I worked for daily newspapers for years, and I was, you know, just a champion on deadline writing. And I was able to take that adrenaline rush and really channel it. And I'm not sure if I would ca have called it centering at the time, but I think that, in fact, that's really what it was. And I rose to the occasion. I never missed a deadline. It was religious to me. And it almost made me a better writer. And I just have not managed to take that same ability and transfer it to the piano. Even now, it's just not a natural kind of thing for me. I, you know, after all this time, I can do it, but it is something that does not come to me naturally or easily. And David, that's an interesting point, that um, the person who can jump out of the airplane is, uh, is an adrenaline junkie looking for adrenaline. That person might not be able to give a speech to the Rotary Club, right? Precisely. I mean, everybody's a little bit different. And, and even within some of these uh, stage fright uh, issues, I mean, I, I can recall somebody that I saw in my own clinic a few years back who, who um, was working as a stand-up comedian, yet could not tolerate 
meeting somebody one on one. So that's, everybody's that's a little me, bit basically. nuanced. <laughs> that's me. It wasn't you that's for a, the record. Like whole, it was not that's like a whole different conversation. Yeah. Individual social anxiety. It's like a completely different uh, beast. But um, you know, Mark, one question that I would have for a lot of musicians is if it's if it's really that gut wrenching, and I can't really tell with you whether it's that gut wrenching or maybe it's only occasionally that gut wrenching. But for a lot of them, it sounds like it kind of is. And even listening to Kate, you know, describe lying in bed and replaying the whole performance and thinking, "Oh my God, I'm terrible. I can never do this again. I have to quit." You you kind of wonder why, why do people keep Keep going. Why, why? Why do something that's that stressful? Oh, we all love to be adored, mm. you know. And and so applause, standing in front, getting applause, getting that acceptance of the crowd is exactly what we're afraid of when we're when we're experiencing that that stage fright. It's the opposite of that. What what will happen if I screw up? And and will they give me another chance? And and so it's really looking outside of myself. And you find that the really great musicians in my thinking would be ones that are so interested and involved in their own art that they don't care and and that is the elimination i think of stage fright too so to, sarah that's an interesting way of looking at the double edged sword here that that the ability to persevere and you went away from playing and came back um the, the that he's saying that and, and you talk to a lot of people who have stage fright. I'm assuming you found this a lot. That the possibility of being adored was more tantalizing than the possibility of being reviled was uh, punishing and off-putting. That somehow or other, well, you only have to look at somebody like Horowitz, right, who mm-hmm. had to take a 12-year hiatus from performing because he was so consumed with stage fright, and you know he had adopted this kind of near autistic diet every time. That you know he performed, he had to have I think it was Dover's soul flowing in from wherever you know from somewhere in the world to you know where he was because he always had to eat at exactly the same time and exactly the same meal before a performance and there there was this an incredible story about him, and i 'm not sure if it was before or after he returned to performing when he was had to be dragged out of the green room by two or three burly men kicking and screaming and actually thrown on stage. So this is a man who just really knew the pain of performing, and he was an incredibly, you know, like this, a supreme pianist, right? So, uh, David Tolan, that, in that sense, we are kind of, I mean, you could probably do the same experiment on rats, right? If you make mm-hmm. the reward big enough, then the rat will put up with a lot to get the reward. And, you know, when the stakes are high like that, you know, the, and, and so I, what we're hearing is that the, the, the positive stakes are really high, that you're going to get adulation from a large number of people, and the negative stakes are really high. Meaning you, you could crash and burn. For a lot of people, that's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it exciting. And for some others, that's what makes it awful. All right. um, We've got to take a little break here. When we come back, uh, we try not to present problems without presenting solutions. We'll try to do that. We've also got some calls from Richard and Jim. We'll try to get to those as well. nervous about doing these announcements in front of people, so I'm going to ask you all to turn your radios down. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Anna Geismar, Katie McAuliffe, and Allison Ehrenreich. 
Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Hugh Grant. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff bombing at the Funny Bones Comedy Club in Virginia Beach, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the rise of the planet of the women's science fiction writers. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're talking a little bit about sort of what works, what helps. Um, and actually, why don't we, uh, in uh, that vein, go to Richard from Sherman. Either that or it's Richard Sherman from the Seattle Seahawks. I'm not sure which it is. Hi, Richard, you're on the air. Uh, Colin, when you talk about nervousness, uh, when you make a speech, there are two kinds of nervous, the good nervous and bad nervous. The good nervous is the adrenaline you've talked about. If there is bad nervous, you have to identify it, analyze it, be very honest with yourself, and say, why am I nervous in this situation? Second, why are you there in the first place? Why have you been invited to speak? Um, You are not there to be judged. You are there to inform. You're telling people something that you know that they don't know, that you think they ought to know. And there's no reason to be nervous about that. Okay. Well, that, of course, assumes you that everybody's going to be uh, all rational about this. Although this does sound like it, it does work for certain people, just telling themselves certain things. Well, let's go to David Tolan on this. Uh, let's say that I do show up uh, at your office door and say I have terrible stage fright. What are you going to do for me? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is put you up on stage. Okay. Well, I, I say that a little bit facetiously, but one of the things that we do know is that when you're afraid of of almost anything, the single best thing you can do is start experiencing it without necessarily hiding behind some of your usual crutches or or safety behaviors and start to actually convince your own brain that this is okay, which for a lot of people that might mean joining an organization like Toastmasters or, you know, getting up and giving a speech in front of some people and practice doing it in a number of different ways. But the other piece is that we, we have to start working on reinterpreting our fear, this idea that if you label your fear as a bad thing, and if you start developing a fear of the fear, that is, you start telling yourself, well, the, the more nervous I get, the worse I'm going to do, you inevitably put yourself into uh, a, you know, a, a pretzel knot in your brain. Better, I think, to be able to label this as excitement, as interest, as engagement, maybe even you know, um, excited jitters. But recognize that that actually can help my performance, not not just hurt it. So the, you know, this idea of kind of systematic desensitization, uh, Sarah, um, is something that uh, that you tried in different ways. Did you have one um, sort of coach slash therapist who had you play in airports? Oh, that was my teacher. Mm. But actually, I just wanted to say that that's by far the most important thing I ever learned in doing this. By, I mean, it seems so simple. But, in fact, it's the most critical thing of all, just to do it. Mm. Um, I had spent my entire life running away from performing and from playing for people. And it was a very easy thing for me to do. I mean, for one thing, my piano was on the second floor of my house. And so when people would come over, even as I was, you know, undergoing and doing this project, I often intended to invite them up and play for them. But once we were downstairs and starting to drink wine and have dinner— I, it was so easy for me to just, you know, like forget to ask them to come and play, so um, to, to listen to me play. So this, you know, just going ahead and doing it, playing in airports. In I played at the San Jose um, International Airport on a regular basis, playing in retirement homes, playing for small groups of people, having like little soirees, I called them, and inviting you know, five to ten people over and just playing for them on a, on a Saturday night. 
and play, playing several, and then playing in master classes, all kinds of things. That was really what helped me kind of just move into a kind of performance mentality because I had to practice performing as much as I practiced practicing. Yeah, Dave, what were you going to say? Well, I, was, I, I, I think that in addition to uh, doing it over and over again, there's much to be said for facing the thing that you're really afraid of. So, for example, if you, if, if Colin, you developed, uh, you know, the debilitating stage fright and you were afraid to, to speak on the radio, I might ask you, what is it you're really afraid of? And mm-hmm. what you may say is, I'm afraid that I'm going to start stuttering mm-hmm. and that people will hear how anxious I am. In that case, I might say, well, why don't you practice stuttering mm-hmm. and prove to yourself that nothing terrible happens? In another case, if somebody's afraid of public speaking or performing, They may say, I'm afraid that people will see me sweating and they'll know that I'm anxious or they'll see me trembling. And I might suggest, why not practice having people see that and learn that that by itself is not the end of the world? Um, So, Mark, what works for you? Uh, It used to be uh, I would not not during Matt Agnes, but when I played bars, it was having a drink. Yeah. You know, it was the easy go to, you know, there it is. And. and I always seemed to think that I was much better. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But it, you know, it, it for me too. It also in in Mad Agnes, it turned up. We it, it was always we played in dry houses a lot of the times. And and uh, for me, it it was just a matter of checking in and and being prepared. And so maybe I'm even the wrong person to have on the show. <laughs> I, maybe I haven't exp- I haven't experienced debilitating. Stage fright. Um, so, well, it's uh, actually. It I think you're, to cope. Yeah. I think your wife Margot is calling in right now. Let's see what she has to say about this. Oh. Hi, you're on the air, Margot. Nope, oh, she may have had stage fright. She may have hung up. All right, we'll see if we can find <laughs> her back. Let's uh, see if we can get back to her again. So, um, so Sarah, you tried every all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of um, uh, different kinds of advice. And and as I'm reading your book too, I'm sort of thinking, well. That might have worked for me or that might have worked. I think I related pretty well to David Green, the sports psychologist. I thought he had great things to say. But I don't know. Apart from that whole thing that you said before about the exposure, 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 was there something else that you really thought was a, a good a good tool? Well, centering proved to be something that was very useful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, learning how to really focus and stop thinking so much in the moment and just playing. You know, I I have since heard that kabuki players will look in the mirror to center themselves before a performance. And that whole notion of just kind of going inside and being completely focused was something that was very useful for me. Yeah, I mean, I I like beta beta blockers on occasion. I think they really (laughs) helped me to kind of revision my my memories of performance so that I no longer had the worst memories to fall back on and recall as I went out on stage. Suddenly I had, you know, a good memory to think about, a good performance and I could build from there. Um, and, and David Dolan, I mean, that's not out of the question. I mean, that's one of the tools that you guys use too, right? Sure. I mean, a, a beta adrenergic blocker, uh, it, it doesn't go into the brain, but it, it drops down your heart rate. And for a lot of people, that's just enough to help them feel more comfortable with what they're doing. And if that works, uh, there's no, you know, there's no reason not to. 
I thought it was interesting, Sarah, the, what you were told about the difference between, by the, I think it was by David Green, by, about sort of left brain versus right brain, that, that so much of your preparation as a concert pianist was left brain. Let me just get this thing perfect. Let me just, you know, let mm-hmm. me just understand the mechanics and the music. I, just, I have to get everything just right. And that your problems existed in a different sphere. That was really, that wasn't really the area that you needed to control for, right? Well, overthinking was always, you know, that was a problem. And some of, there's some very interesting research about what happens when, you know, that side of your brain, your, the left side of your brain kind of takes over. So that researchers have found that if, um, if somebody actually clenches their left fist, which controls the left side, controls the right side of the brain, it actually helps balance the brain and you have diminished activity in the left brain, and then you're able to kind of relax and start thinking, you know, start start kind of feeling more. And so I just used all those kinds of tools. Yeah, that whole idea of just sort of you, you, you can't really have the luxury of a negative thought. You have to get that those negative thoughts kind of turned off there. Mark, if Margot's um, line had, had held, I think she would have told us about something called the Feldenkrais method. Am I even saying that correctly? Yeah, Moshe Feldenkrais. Uh, I, I don't know what she would say about it, though, so I can't speak for her. All right. I, I wouldn't want to do that. So one of the things we asked, uh, you know, sort of to get back to that question, why why do it? You know, why do it if you have stage fright? Um, I, I think of the Woody Allen joke, you know, where he goes to see the doctor and, uh, you know, my mother thinks she's a, a chicken. My mother-in-law thinks she's a chicken. Uh, oh, why don't you put her away? Because we need the eggs. Well, I, th- I think that's sort of why people perform, because <laughs> we need the eggs. But um, – Intern Katie McAuliffe asked uh, the same actress, Erica Roth Rude, what advice she would give to an up-and-coming performer with stage fright. There's a reason we do live theater, and it's that excitement and fragility and aliveness that anything could happen, even though you're doing a script. For young actors, I would say, tell the story. Just focus on the story, because if it causes you pain, then step away for a while and reassess. And maybe if you still love it, but you really hate the performing part, be a director, be a designer, be a part of the storytelling. But if if being up in front of people doesn't feed something in your soul, then don't do it. Uh, And that's a good lesson maybe to close with, too. And an awful lot of people do make that switch, too. They go back behind the scenes. Uh, All right. So uh, we want to thank everybody who helped out with today's show. David Tolan, uh, director of the Anxiety Disorder Center and Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy at the Institute of Living at Hartford Hospital. The author of Face Your Fears, a proven plan to beat anxiety, panic, phobias, and obsessions. Sarah Solovich, her book is Playing Scared, a history and memoir of stage fright. Mark Saunders performed for over 35 years, most recently as a member of Mad Agnes. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about women in science fiction. Okay, Kayon, you've got this. Just read the notes you printed out and you'll be fine. Good afternoon. Newsroom printer test page. Your HP LaserJet 4200TN has been successfully installed. Thank you.